Thank you, Mary Catherine. Uh, we're going to be getting to this idea of saving the expectations of us as uh, the expectations that we have um, of God saving us as we go through our Advent series. If you could uh, turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be hanging out there for a little bit. We're going to be going to Isaiah 64. I also want to say, um, uh, the, just to, for everybody who was here last week, you would have uh, potentially... Uh, Remember, you uh, remembered, but but Ryan is doing great. She's uh, fine. Um, if you notice, we had a small incident last weekend, um, so she's doing great now. She's doing so well that we let her handle fire uh, earlier in the service. So uh, thank you for uh, all of your prayers and concerns as we were operating in that. So uh, we're taking a break from our Life After David series, and we're uh, talking about Advent. And as I approached Advent this year, I wanted us to talk about this idea of the things that had been fulfilled. Oh, yeah, that'll be dangerous, yeah. Um, and, and, and this is important for us because us, for us who follow Jesus, Advent is not merely a season or an exercise in nostalgia. It's not just a season of vague feelings of goodwill or mere adherence to a tradition that makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. It is all of that for those of us who follow Jesus, but the season is more as well. It's recalling of an events that have taken place in the past, events that took place in a specific location, in a specific context, in a specific culture that inform us, these stories inform us of who we are today. And they ought to form our responses and actions in the world in which we live. And it's a reminder that we ought not to look at the world in which we live with fear or confusion or despair, but to look at it with hope and expectation. And hope and expectation that the story that we're in, regardless of the circumstances that we can see around us, regardless of how bleak or how dark or how frightening our circumstances may be at the moment, that we trust that the story that we're in ends well. And we trust this because of the things that have been fulfilled. This idea comes from Luke chapter 1. Whereas Luke begins his account of, 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 of G, the ministry of Jesus in the early church, he starts with this, that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to the, us by those who were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I want to call to our minds the things that have been filled, fulfilled among us and what that means for us for the present and for the future and for eternity. And I want us to look not only at the Christmas story and the associated events, but, but what has been fulfilled in our own lives. I'm hoping that you will recall the ways that God has been faithful to you in the past, even if you haven't noticed it before. I'm hoping that... Uh, that, 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 this will, that this being reminded of his faithfulness in the past will point you towards his faithfulness in the future. And I think it's fair for us, and what we're going to do this morning is as we look forward with expectation for God to do something in our world, for God to do something in our lives, which is what we're here for, that it's fair for us to look back at what they were expecting at this, uh, in, in ancient Israel and in the stories that we were talking about. And it's 
fair for us to look at what they were expecting and the prophecies that they were reading in Isaiah 64. And this is, this is an interesting idea that, this is the, 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 that these were passages that were quoted around the birth of Jesus by his parents, by, 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 by Solomon, by, by, sorry, by uh, the guy who was in the temple, the old guy. Anyway, I forget his name. Sorry, it starts with an S. Um, what's that? Simeon. Well done. Thank you. You, you win the Bible content exam today. Um, but these, these passages were referred to and called to mind. This is what they were thinking. And I think it's interesting to look at this in Isaiah 64. That as they expected God that would intervene, they said this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains would tremble before you as when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. This is interesting because when Jesus begins to appear on the scene, the, 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 the world into which he was born was a world of oppression. The, the nation of Israel had been conquered by the Roman Empire in roughly about 63 uh, BCE. Pompey the Great sacked Jerusalem and, ha- and, and established Prince Harkanus II as ethnarch and high priest, which is contrary to the will of the people. They had this foreign oppressor come in and say, hey, you're, we're going to take some of the rules that you have. We're going to sort of acknowledge your religion, but we're going to throw together this king and high priest for you. He's going to be both. And naturally, the people freaked out. Later, uh, and they kept going through, this various, uh, through various iterations of rule and oppression until 43 BCE when, when, uh, when, uh, when Herod the Great was established as king of the Jews which was crushing for the people of Israel at the time. There were people who were, so this was, so as people expected Jesus to arrive, there were people who were under the crushing weight of the Roman Empire as administered by, uh, by their own people who had betrayed them, by a religious elite that was trying to maintain some sort of peace and calm in the face of Roman oppression, that was trying to maintain their own power. And the place where they went to was this old passage, this old prophecy from when, uh, when the people of Israel had been being crushed by, uh, by Babylon and Assyria. And they looked at this and said, Oh God, that you would intervene now, that you would rend the heavens and come down that you would tear the sky apart. And they understood themselves to be waiting for the intervention of a Messiah, a Messiah who would change everything. And I want us to sort of get into our heads the, 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 the worldview of the, the, the people of God at that time, because the people of Israel understood themselves to be part of a cycle of history. They believed that history was linear. Don't get me wrong about that. They believed that history had a starting point and an end point. They didn't believe that, you know, the time is a flat circle. But they did believe that there was a pattern of events that had taken place throughout their history and was repeating itself. And you can find this pattern of events in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you read through Deuteronomy chapter 32, it starts off with God creating his people, calling them out. He says, I called you out. I made you a people where you were not a people. And, in the, and, and, and as he does that, he provides for them and everything goes well for them. And in the midst of that, they forget. 
and they forget that God was good to them, and, and, and in the midst of their forgetfulness, they begin to turn to other gods, and then things start to go badly for them, and the ultimate consequence of, of their idolatry is God saying, fine, have it your way, and the, resp- and, and the ultimate consequence of that is oppression and destruction. People from other nations come in, destroy them, murder them, steal from them, take their things, take their family, take their... their, their uh, take the, the, sub, the, the contents of their lives and, and tear apart and treat them uh, without dignity. But the story doesn't stop there because it always turns to God intervening in the lives of his people and saying, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to put myself into the story. I'm going to provide atonement and I'm going to pro- provide destruction for his enemy, for, for your enemies. So this cycle God creates and founds his people when they get complacent and forget idolatry. And in this place, of oppression and destruction, they're waiting for the Lord to intervene. And these are the words of Deuteronomy 32 of what it looks like when the Lord intervenes on their behalf. I lift my hand to heaven. This is God speaking about himself. And solemnly swear as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. So this is the world, this is the expectation that people had of the intervention of God. And in the early churches, they were waiting for Jesus. As they got to this point where they were waiting for the things to be fulfilled, they looked at the indignity done to their religious traditions with the temple destroyed, with, a, with a, a foreign high priest established over them. The poverty that was imposed on them both by a religious elite and a political elite that, that ignored them. They looked at that and they demanded that God intervene and that the world change. And they weren't expecting a kind and gentle a feeling-based intervention. They were expecting that God would crush his enemies. And if we're concerned, and if you need further evidence that this is what the people of God were expecting, that he would rend the heavens and come down, we can see this in Mary's expectations as well. When Mary hears that she is giving birth to the Messiah, she says this in the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's expectation of a God who intervenes in her life was that there would be a turning over of tables that the rich would be sent away empty, that those for whom this world worked so well that they couldn't imagine another world being possible, that those people would be rejected and disappointed and set aside, and those people who in this world were waiting for it to desperately change because everything was taken away from them, she expected that God was going to intervene. They weren't waiting for a baby. They were waiting for a rescuer. And they were waiting for a rescuer who would not bring peace, but who would bring a sword. They were expecting a God who would intervene, not merely with nice words and pretty decorations and collective sing-songs that cause us to feel better without changing any of the actual circumstances. They were expecting a God that was mighty to save, to jump into the situation and crush the oppressor and lift up the oppressed. 
They were in pain, and they were frightened, and they were crushed, and they wanted God to tear the sky open, to shake the ground, and make his justice known. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is not the cry of people who are having things go well for them. This is not the cry of people who want a warm and fuzzy feeling season of of, of vague peace and goodwill towards men. This is the people who want justice to be done. That the way things are going is crushing them and pushing them aside and making them feel small and insignificant and weak and damaged and they are not willing to put up with it anymore and they demand that God rend the heavens and come down. And I can understand if this sounds entirely too violent and interventionist to you. And when you come to Christmas, you want things to be nice and calm, and you want and you want soft lights, and we want good feelings and traditions. And I understand that. And I get, and there's part of me that wants that as well. And we want sometimes in our world, and especially this season, not just us, but the entire culture wants a comfortable Christianity that takes its place alongside all of the other societal trappings. And we have a God that that will stay where we put him and looks nice on the shelf when he's dusted off for seasonal gatherings, but that is not what we have been offered in Jesus. What we have been offered in Jesus as we follow him is a God who is mighty to save, who intervenes in the course of human history and is not willing to let justice continue. This is, I love, uh, I've been really influenced in this idea by the, by the work of Miroslav Wolf. Miroslav Wolf is a theologian at, the, theologian at, the, uh, at, at Yale, and, uh, and he grew up in Bosnia. In the, uh, through the conflict that happened in Bosnia in the 90s. And, and, he, and he has very interesting ideas of, of the idea of violence in our culture because sometimes we see these passages of rending the heavens and coming down, of God standing by a sharpened sword, and we're like, ugh, I don't want that. And he, he writes this, he says, One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? A counter question to that could go a bit something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to, con- to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole of history of Judaism and Christianity? One could further argue that, the wor- that in a world of violence, it would not be wor- worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. We live in a world of violence and we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. And most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use on others. They deem talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment to human hands, presumably because this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. That we should bring down the powerful from their thrones, as Mary just sang earlier, seems responsible, that God should do the same, as the song of the revolutionary virgin explicitly states, seems crude. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. We want a comfortable God that allows us to do what we want to do without fear of reprisal. 
And this is what Miroslav Volf continues as he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you were delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis that we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. We believe and trust in a God that intervenes on our behalf. We believe and trust in a God that is just as furious and angry at injustice as we are. And we believe in a God who intervenes and whose intervention allows us to lay down our own vengeance. That we can trust, that we can leave aside the cycle of human violence, the cycle of human intervention, and the, the, the cycle of human oppression by saying, vengeance is God's. I'm going to let him handle it now and for eternity. As followers of Jesus, we are believers in justice and God who is outraged at the subjugation of his people, who intervenes and is mighty to save. Now you might be saying, we live in the comfort of a suburb. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us who, who speak from the, 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 the relative wealth of one of the, the wealthiest cities in the world, which is true, one of the, one of the wealthiest provinces in the world? And I respond by saying this, this matters because did you come here anxious today? And I know you did. I know some of your stories. I know some of you came here worried today. Some of you came here afraid, either for your own health or the health of people that you love, either from your own situation or the situation of people that you love, and you came here understanding that tomorrow is not guaranteed and you are not comfortable with your life now, nor the life that you can envision for yourself in the future. And I believe that you came here wondering, is the God that you're talking about here enough to help me in that situation? Is the God that you're talking about here enough to help me in my anxiety now? And I can give you the answer as confidently as I can be in anything that I've ever said in my entire life, yes. Yes, God is mighty to save. And if you have entered in here afraid today, if you were entered here anxious today, if you if you came here concerned and depressed and sad and frightened about the future of the world, our response to that as followers of Jesus is as it has been for thousands of years to call upon our God and say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We are not satisfied with this. And we turn to you because you are mighty to save, because you intervene, and because you make a difference in our lives. Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you frustrated? Are you frightened? When we follow a God who has intervened in our lives, he's intervened in small ways. Be it just the one thing going right when you needed something to go right. I, I remember this was over 10 years ago, and, uh, and I had left a job because I thought I was supposed to, and, and we ended up in a position where we were financially concerned, and there was one... Uh, 
things weren't as stable as I'd like them to be. I was in. There was one we one time when we had to make the the mortgage payment, and we were short. We were short a decent amount of of money, and uh, and the the week that we started to panic about this the most, a check arrived that we had overpaid our house taxes on our mortgage for the previous year that covered the amount that we needed. And you might say that that story is just a coincidence, yes. Or you could say that God has intervened in our lives in small ways and we have seen the things that have been fulfilled among us. So God does care and God does intervene. God has intervened in large ways as well. God has given us the safety and, and, and comfort of a country where we can speak his name without the fear of oppression. God has intervened in large ways by, by creating this world in such a way that when I drop something, it falls to the ground, that the sun rises and sets, that the, that the, 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 the turning of the planet works in such a way that human life can exist and thrive on this planet. God has, in, has intervened in our world in large ways and has fulfilled his promise to care for us, and God has intervened in our lives in eternal ways as well. And that is where Jesus enters into the picture. That in the ultimate intervention that we're looking for, what we want to know is, are we going to be safe now and for the future? And Jesus enters into that situation in our lives and says, yes, that the story is headed somewhere, and the story ends well, that it ends in justice, it ends in peace, it ends in victory for those who love God and are called according to his service, uh, to, to, sorry, called according to his purpose. And we can trust and have hope that this God that we're calling on to rend the heavens and come down has already come down and intervened in a way that we never expected. God has intervened in our lives in large ways, in small ways, and in eternal ways in Jesus. So the question that we have as we enter into this morning, as we enter into this Advent season, is are we genuinely expecting that God is going to save us? Are we genuinely expecting that? Because it's really easy to occupy a pew, and I'm guilty of this as anybody else. It's really easy to just occupy a space. It's really easy to call yourself a Christian. And then when things get hard, when things get difficult, when someone gets sick, to find yourself in a position where we just do what everybody else does, rather than throwing ourselves under the auspices of Almighty God and saying, God, do something. Now, I'm not saying don't go to your doctor's appointments. I'm not saying don't be wise and have good stewardship over your life. But are we genuinely trusting an expectation that when we call on him to save, that he is going to save? Or do we believe that our lives are too far gone? Do we believe that our lives are too small and insignificant for him to touch? Or do we believe that we just don't matter? Because everything about scripture and everything about the way that history has worked is working towards telling you that yes, you do matter. And you are not so insignificant as to not be touched by the love and the grace and the power of an almighty God. Let's pray together. God. We have come here anxious this morning. We have come here frightened. We have come here frustrated. And we have come here concerned about the direction of a world that appears to be, to be headed in ways that we cannot control, in ways that we did not expect. But we also know that you are sovereign, that you are strong, that you are powerful, and that you are not surprised 
There is no event that has happened in human history. There is no event that will happen in human history that is surprising to you, that is dismaying to you, that causes you to despair. So we even, even in the midst of understanding that this world is not as it should be, we ask that you intervene, that you tear the heavens and come down in large ways, bringing peace to nations that have been oppressed, in small ways, bringing peace and comfort to people who feel overcome by the pressures of this world. Now we'd, we would, in, in this Advent season, we would not just expect that we would have a, a, a brief season of, of fuzzy feelings because of the traditions that we've engaged in, but that we would expect that our lives are going to be changed now and for eternity because of what you have done, are doing, and will do in the future. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Oh, right. Um, we're experimenting with a different way of doing communion over the next four weeks over Advent. So we're going to try this. And, uh, and it's going to involve you guys coming forward, and it's going to involve doing communion before the singing. And, uh, and so we're going to try this for four weeks. And if you like it, let us know. If you hate it, let us know. Whatever you feel about it, we don't have to do it forever. But this is how we're going to do it uh, for today, uh, for the next four weeks. And we come to, our, to this table ask, thinking and asking about the intervention of God. And one of the things that we do at, at this church that we feel is important is to continually remember the intervention of God. That in the fullness of time, that in the course of human history, God planted himself in the middle of our story and had his body broken on, his, on our behalf. That he had his blood spilled on our behalf. And that this began a new agreement of how the world would work. And we are called to remember his death until he comes again and restores all things and makes all things new. So as we come to this table, we ask ourselves, and we're going to take a moment in silent prayer to pray, how are we expecting God to intervene in our lives? What grace do we need from Jesus as we come to this table? What forgiveness, what grace, what peace are we looking for as we come to this table? And as we come to this table, as we come to Jesus, this table is open because he responds to us in ways beyond what we can imagine. And we ask that you take a moment to prepare your hearts and your minds for, for, for the comfort and the peace and the intervention that is found in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll take a moment in silent prayer together. <laughs> 